0: But we are here this morning to worship our Lord and to hear from Him out of His Word. And uh, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you know that we have moved out of Daniel. We were in a series in the book of Daniel, and we are now starting uh, each week in the summer uh, as we have been doing in past years to look at various psalms. And the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning is one that uh, probably a lot of you have heard over the years, it's, a, it's a, one of my favorites, it's Psalm 84. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them and follow along as I read and, and even keep them open because we'll be looking at various words and phrases throughout the sermon. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath, somewhere in that row, and the text is on page 493, Hear now Psalm 84, the word of the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God and Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. Well, Psalm 84, uh, if you look at different scholars, they tend to divide it up somewhat differently here and there, but, but a lot of them have uh, basically the same division uh, for the most part. If you look at the psalm, it's divided pretty evenly. Uh, those, if you, if you look in your text, you'll see that at verse 4 and then at verse 8, you see that word selah. Now, that was uh, a musical or liturgical term. Scholars don't actually know what it meant for sure, but most scholars agree that they think that word there meant that you were supposed to sort of pause at that point, hence why I paused in the text as I read it. It It gives you a chance to pause and consider what was just read. And so as we look at this psalm, you can divide it pretty well by those selahs. Verses one through four is the first section. Verses five to eight is the second section. And verses nine through 12 is the third section of the psalm. And furthermore, if you look at the psalm, you can see that within each of those sections, there is a beatitude. If You remember the... uh, Um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are. And here you find three Beatitudes in this psalm in each section. At verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. <clears throat> now, as we've gone through the prophetic book of Daniel, those of you who have been with us through that, you know that one of the things that we have really been pressing home that I, I think that that book presses home is that the people of God are living in exile, We are like those in Daniel's day, those Israelites who had been exiled into Babylon. In fact, the New Testament calls us exiles or strangers in a strange land, that kind of idea. And the idea that that we've been pressing home while we've looked at Daniel is that Christians are exiles and we've been called to be ambassadors, that we are citizens of another country And we represent that other country, that country being God's country, while we are here in exile. But another way to think of the Christian life is not just that we live in exile or that we are ambassadors in this world. Another way to look at the Christian life that the Bible kind of pictures often is that Christians are pilgrims, that we are on a journey, that this world is not our home that because we are in exile, we are passing through this world. Yes, we are to walk in this world with integrity and while we're here to live the best we can for God, but ultimately we are making our journey to what has been referred to as the celestial city, what John Bunyan called in his Pilgrim's Progress. And so Psalm 84, it's, it's good to see Psalm 84 as a pilgrim psalm. Psalm 84 is the psalm of a pilgrim heading home to God's house. If we look at the structure that I gave you, where we see those three sections there, verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 8, and verses 9 to 12, we can see that verses 1 through 4 and 9 through 12 really focus our attention mainly on the temple. It focuses our attention on God's house, where God dwells. Sandwiched in between verses 5 to 8, it focuses on the journey to get there, on the pilgrim's journey to God's house. And the psalm begins with an explosion, a proclamation, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. It's it's as though the pilgrim, as he's making this journey, is reflecting on what he has seen in the past. He's reflecting on the vision of the temple, on how lovely it is, on how beautiful it is, on how majestic it is, and that's all he can focus on as he's making his way there. Solomon's temple, uh, just go back and read the description of it in the Old Testament and you'll see how amazing it must have looked. Uh, It's a shame that it was completely destroyed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and and, uh, Babylon, as we've talked about in Daniel. But that temple was so majestic that when the temple was rebuilt, uh, that you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, that, that time period, you see that those who knew the old temple actually wept when they saw the new one, because it paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was beautiful, but just notice here how all-consumed this pilgrim is to be there. It's, it's, he's describing his whole person, his whole person, his soul, meaning his inner self. His soul is yearning to get there. His heart is yearning to get there. And remember uh, from our sermon last week, the Hebrew word for heart doesn't just mean the seat of emotions or feelings, but his heart, his mind, his will, everything is bent on being there. And even his flesh, his body, his countenance, he can't wait to get to the temple. His whole person is wrapped up. You know, sometimes we can Look a certain way on the outside and feel completely different on the inside. I think sometimes we even do that in church. And somebody walks up to you and says, Hey, how are you? And you've had a horrible week. Maybe you even had a horrible morning. Maybe you had a terrible fight on the way to church or something bad just happened, but you don't really feel like getting into it. Maybe this isn't the person you want to share with. So what do you say? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Inside, you're crumbling that's not true for the psalmist. This guy, this pilgrim, his outward appearance is reflecting how he feels deep down. But notice here by by the words that that his emotions or what he's describing is kind of a mixture of deep longing and exuberant joy. You see how his, his heart faints, longs or faints for the court's the only thing I could even kind of compare it to, maybe, is Christmas. You know, when I'm tucking my kids into bed, not only on Christmas Eve, but, but even like a month before, you know, it's like as soon as December hits, probably as soon as we put the Christmas tree up and we start playing the Christmas music, you know, it like, seems like every night you tuck them in and, and the question is, how much longer before Christmas? How much longer do we have to wait? It, It's it's kind of a combination of, you you know, if you didn't know what Christmas is, you might think it's a bad thing because their anticipation is so heartfelt for Christmas. And as the pilgrim is journeying there, notice he's picturing it in his mind. He's picturing in his mind the different courts. He's picturing in his mind the altars that he sees. In fact, it's interesting in the psalm, you get a picture of the temple that I think you rarely see in Scripture. Because he sees in here, he even pictures the way that the birds, the sparrows and the swallows, make nests for their young in the nooks and crannies of the temple. He remembers that. He remembers how even the birds feel safe and secure and protected in the house of God. Now again, Solomon's temple is beautiful, it it was majestic, I'm sure it was a sight to behold, But, but notice here that the psalmist is not so much focused on a place, but on a person. He is speaking of the courts and the altars and the architecture of the temple, but ultimately he's not longing to make a journey to the building, as we did when we visited London. When we were in London, there were lots of buildings we wanted to visit. We went to Westminster Abbey. We, we went to Canterbury Cathedral. We went to St. Paul's Cathedral. We went all over the place, went to the British Museum. We went there because of the place, solely. I didn't care who else was there. I was there with Michelle, and she was the only one I really cared to be there with. But notice here, his longing is not to be in a building, as majestic as it is, but his longing is to be near his God. Look at all the ways that he references God. I mean, he references the building in a few ways, but he says that Yahweh, his God, is the living God. His God, Yahweh, is his king. His God, Yahweh, is the commander of the armies of heaven. His temple is His temple, not the the pilgrims. His courts are His courts. His temple is His house. His temple is His dwelling place. Now, when the psalmist says that the temple is your dwelling place, uh, pagan cultures actually thought that a particular mountain was the actual dwelling place of that deity, almost as though he was kind of confined there. So that when you went to that temple or you went to that spot, that's the only place and it kind of became a sacred place in that way because that was where and that was the only place where you met with that deity. Scripture is very clear that God is not confined the temple. God was not confined to the tabernacle. In fact, on the day that the temple was unveiled, when Solomon's temple in all of its glory was dedicated, you see Solomon say in 1 Kings 8, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. He spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place where you have said, my name shall be there. See, they understood that God didn't, was not contained there, but they also understood that when they went to the temple, that is where God chose in a special way to reveal his presence. God, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one, chose to reveal what is called the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies of the temple. The Holy of Holies was the innermost room. It was a perfect cube, and it was separated from all of the other courts and all of the other areas of the temple by a thick curtain that no one could get through except the high priest. And the high priest could only enter that room once a year on what's called the Day of Atonement. The rest of the time, the rest of the year, for everybody else, it was off-limits, No one could just stroll into the Holy of Holies because God's holy, sinless presence dwelt there. And if someone just nonchalantly walked in, that person would instantly die. So the courts that the temple had and the altars that the temple had were not merely design. They actually had a function. The courts and the altars were there to... Separate to keep the sinful people out of the Holy of Holies and the altars specifically to pay for the sins of the people who were not holy enough to be with God. And yet, even though this pilgrim knows that he cannot enter the Holy of Holies, even though this pilgrim knows he cannot be in the immediate unveiled presence of God, Yet he still longs to be there because God is there. And so of all the places in the world where he could be, the place he longs to be most is where God is. You know, when you're going somewhere, it doesn't really matter in in one sense uh, where the place is as much as it matters who you're there with. The people matter more. I mean, uh, just a couple of weekends ago, as you know, as as I mentioned in, I think, last week's sermon, we visited Niagara Falls, and Niagara Falls is, those of you who have been there, is sublime. Niagara Falls is majestic, magnificent, all of the things powerful, all of the things that you picture it to be, it is. But, you know, I went with my family. That was the main reason for going, Our family is oftentimes scattered throughout the week, and uh, everyone's kind of doing something different. We have all age ranges. And so the main reason for going to Niagara Falls is to gather all of us together and take a long trip in the van and be there together for a few days, whereas otherwise we would be scattered. And if somebody were to say to me, look, you have a choice of either visiting Niagara Falls by yourself, or staying home in your living room with your family and playing games all weekend, I would easily choose the latter. Because Niagara Falls matters little to me compared to my family. You know, the PCA's Book of Church Order, we, it, it lists in there principles of worship. And it's, it's one of the most valuable things I have ever read in terms of Changing my heart and my mind towards what worship is really about. And one of the principles in the PCA's principles of worship is this a service of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's people with each other. Why do you come here on Sunday morning? I mean, you're here, you could be home, you could be relaxing, you could be somewhere else could be on a golf course or a beach somewhere. Instead, you're here in this room. Why are you here? For, for some of you, you're here because you've, you're basically giving a favor to someone. You'd actually rather be somewhere else. The beauty of the building, and it is a nice building, only goes so far. You're, you're actually kind of bored with what's going on. Some of you are here because you love to see your friends. Your best friends are here. And when you come to worship, you are gathering with them. And that's that's important. That's a huge part of being here. That's what the principle says. a, A service of public worship is a gathering of God's people with each other. But the important part of the principle is that it's not merely a gathering of God's people with each other, but before all else, it is a meeting of the triune God with His chosen people. What, what a privilege we have to gather here. Brothers and sisters, we, when we gather on Sunday morning before all else, this time is a meeting of the triune God. The God who controls the galaxies who condescends to meet with us. His chosen people. This is a special time. A few hours of our week where we gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but most importantly, where we meet with our God. And the psalmist ends this first part by summing it up by proclaiming, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Brothers and sisters, we are blessed to be here this morning. But you see, our life, as you know, isn't always spent in the house of the Lord. We come once a week. Sometimes if there's something else happening, we might come twice a week. But our main gathering is Sunday morning. Each week, though, of our lives from Monday to Saturday is, in a sense, a pilgrimage back here. Each week is we're sent out into the world. We're sent out to walk this pilgrimage in the world until we come back. And that's what verses 5 to 8 are focused on, focused on the pilgrimage to the temple. The scene shifts. And notice here that the psalmist, though he ended the last section with a blessing, he begins this section with a blessing. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. See, it's important to note that the ones who are truly blessed are not necessarily the ones whose physical bodies are present here on Sunday morning, but those in whose heart the Lord dwells. It's not necessarily that you dwell here. Lots of people could come here again as I just mentioned for lots of different reasons. But the one who is blessed is the one whose strength is in God, in, in the one in whose heart dwells the Lord. Notice what he says. The person is blessed is the one who's making the pilgrimage in the strength of the Lord and in whose heart are the high highways designed. You know, there was an obligation There was an obligation in Israel that all Hebrew males had to make a pilgrimage to the temple three times a year. They had to. You find this in Exodus chapter 23. And I'm sure because Paul says not all Israel was truly Israel, I'm sure there were some, maybe many, who made that journey, no doubt, out of obligation I mean, sometimes, it, depending on where you lived, it's a kind of a hard journey to make. There are things you have to sacrifice, work you can't do, whatever. And once you've seen the temple a few times, gets old. You know, do I really have to go again for this feast? But I have to because I'm under obligation to. Some made the trip because they felt like they had to. But others made the trip because they loved to. Others made the trip because they wanted to go. You know, we have a lot of different places that we go in our lives. And some we go to because we have to. I don't know that I've ever met a person that went to the dentist for any other reason that they had to. Or for some kind of, you know, either an emergency or preventative maintenance. Nobody goes because they want to. I, well, if I'm speaking to somebody in here who wants to, you're the first I've ever met. But you know, we go to our favorite restaurant with the people we love the most because we want to. Nobody twists our arm to go to our favorite restaurant. You know, Why are you here this morning? Some of you, again, may have come here this morning out of a sense of obligation. Some of you may have come here out of a sense of duty. Some of you, you you grew up your whole life going to church and you just think it's the the right thing to do, it's a good thing to do, and maybe it'll uh, get me somehow right with God. You know, before becoming a pastor, I had many jobs kind of at what you call out in the world, various jobs. And one of the things that I noticed, no matter what job I had, the non-Christians that I worked with couldn't believe that I wanted to be in church on Sunday. I mean, in their mind, it's the worst place to be. (coughs) The only thing that they could even fathom was that maybe I went to get in good with God. But when they found out that, no, I go because I love to be there, that I go because I'd rather be there than any other place, it blew their minds. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't fathom that. see, the answer to the question, why are you here, if you really look in your heart to consider why you're here this morning, it's a, it's a good diagnostic for where you stand with God. Because you will want to be here, you will love to be here, when and only when God changes your heart to want to be here. Scripture says, uh, apart from the Holy Spirit, we are at enmity with God. We are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You will not want to come here if the gospel and the word of God are being preached, The PCA's Book of Church Order, again, the principles of worship. Here's another really important one. Public worship must be performed in spirit and in truth. Externalism and hypocrisy stand condemned. The forms of public worship have value, meaning what we do here this morning, the singing, the prayer, the Lord's Supper, all of these things have value to you. Only when they serve to express the inner reverence of the worshiper and his sincere devotion to the true and living God. And only those whose hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit are capable of such reverence and devotion. No one else is capable, everyone else is, in a sense, playing a role externalism, hypocrisy, just as many of those Israelites did, no doubt, on their way to the temple. Notice here that, that even for the one whose heart is devoted to the Lord, this pilgrim, notice here, and, and, and you'll see why I say this, that the pilgrimage to the house of the Lord isn't easy. Yes, it's a, it's a joyful journey in the sense that he can't wait to get there, but it's not an easy one. Look here. It says they go through the valley of Baca. Now, that phrase, the valley of Baca, again, we don't quite know exactly what that is. It could have been a literal valley. We haven't found it if it was. Most scholars think, in fact, it was not a literal uh, valley, but that it is a statement being used here figuratively. They're on this journey to the temple and they're traveling through the valley of Baca. Now again, we don't know which Hebrew word this psalmist is choosing to represent figuratively this valley. But either way, it points to hardship. Because depending on what Hebrew word he is using a play on words with, Baka either means dry and desolate or it means the valley of weeping, the valley of desolation or the valley of weeping. <clears throat> you can see in verse 8, as this section is summed up, it almost there in verse 8 sounds like a Psalm of Lament. If you've read the Psalms of Lament, you, you see these cries that the psalmists issue. And you see here that the psalmist says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. It's as though the psalmist is crying out as he's making this, tra- uh, this uh, traversing this, this valley of Baca to the temple. As he diverse, uh, tra- traverses this dry and desolate land. As he traverses this valley of tears. You know, brothers and sisters, I, as... The the pastor here, as one of the pastors, one of the elders here, Uh, I speak to a lot of you uh, each week, each month, and I know, as I just look out here, I know that, and I know the specific dry, desolate valleys that you're going through right now. I know the valley of tears that you're going through. Some of you right now are in the driest most desolate valley you've ever been in the thing you're dealing with right now is the worst valley of tears you've ever been in some of you it's not some of you have faced others but sitting here today you can look back on what was the worst thing you faced and you know that even now the thing that you're facing is hard there's not one person in this room I guarantee it. In the luncheon, you can ask. Walk around and ask, are you going through some kind of dry valley today? I bet there's not gonna be any person that says, no, life is perfect. It couldn't be better. No. They are going through these valleys. Is there anyone who can take a dry valley? or take a valley of tears, is there anyone alive who can take that difficult road and turn it into a place of springs? see, it it seems impossible, doesn't it, that, that the biggest hardships in our lives could actually be on some level a blessing for us. And yet that's what the psalmist seems to be saying, The psalmist says that that this valley of Makkah can become a spring, a place of springs, only because the person making this pilgrimage is doing it in the strength of the Lord. Only because the person who's going through this valley is seeing this valley through the eyes of faith. The person who's going through this valley is seeing this valley as a temporary valley until he reaches where God dwells. And he is and he's worshiping with him. This person who's going through this valley has in his heart the highway to Zion. You know, oftentimes God meets us most powerfully when our pain is most acute in our lives. The pilgrim is moving from strength to strength. God is carrying him along. On this journey. That's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be here every Sunday. For one, because there's nothing more important than meeting with the triune God. But but secondly, we have a pilgrimage to make next week. It begins the moment we walk out of these doors. And what we get here today strengthens us for the journey that we have next week until we meet again. The following week. Well, that's a good place to look at verses 9 through 12 because the psalmist begins in the temple, and in verses 9 to 12, he ends in the temple. Now, verse 10, you see here, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's so vivid. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist If he could make a choice, if somebody held a choice out to him and said, look, you can live for one day in the courts of God or you could live a thousand days elsewhere. He said, I would rather pick the day in the courts of God. Give me one day rather than a thousand if that's where I could spend it. He says... I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The doorkeeper in the house of God, that was the lowliest servant in the house of God, the doorkeeper. That was the one who did the quote-unquote lowliest job. You'll see that the, the psalm is written by the sons of Korah Uh, If you want to find out who Korah is and who his sons are, you can go back to Numbers and you'll see there uh, this rebellion that happens. It's quite dramatic. Of course, these sons of Korah are not the the sons that were in that, you know, that many years ago, but it has been preserved and, and the sons of Korah was part of the Levitical line that helped run things in the temple. And doorkeeping was the least of the things. It it was the thing that probably most of them would rather not do. But see what he says here. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, we might read that and say, well, yeah, of course. I mean, (coughs) this is the Bible and this is a psalmist after all. Of course, he's going to say I'd rather be in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But what we have to understand is what he's saying here is when he talks about the tense of wickedness, he is talking about all that the world has to offer. He's talking about living the life of having everything, fame and fortune, and the pleasures of the world, and the luxuries of this world. And he is contrasting that and saying, I would give up all of that instead to be a humble, doorkeeper in the house of God. John Calvin says he would rather be cast into a common and unhonored place, provided he were among the people of God, than, than be exalted to the highest rank of honor among unbelievers. You know, I was just uh, had breakfast not that long ago with a friend of mine. He's one of my best friends. Uh, I've known him since we were six years old. He's a strong Christian. But he was telling me that he uh, is leaving. In fact, well, he's already left. He's now there. But he was heading uh, to uh, go on vacation with his family. And I asked where he was going and said he's going to be uh, staying with his, one of his good friends who's also a multimillionaire, and he'll be staying with this guy on his luxury yacht that he said the yacht itself has about 4,000 square feet of living space. Uh, kitchens, bathrooms, you know, bedrooms, all kinds of entertainment on this yacht. And they're going to be sailing for two weeks in the Caribbean. And after that, his friend is going to leave and go somewhere else with his family, and he's offered my friend to spend the next week in his multi-million-dollar mansion on one of the islands. Now, I don't know if that guy knows the Lord or not. Again, my friend does. But the question the psalmist puts before you this morning is this. Would you rather spend a Sunday morning knowing the Lord and picking up crumbs left after the fellowship luncheon, sweeping them up and putting them in a trash can, Or spend a lifetime sailing around in a luxury yacht and yet not knowing the Lord? Friend, I can tell you that for me, that choice is simple. I don't even have to think about it for more than a second. Because I wouldn't trade the pearl of great price for all the mansions and riches in the whole world. Missionary Jim Elliot famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus, more famously, said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What about you? As you sit here this morning, ask yourself, what do I value most in this world? Ask yourself, is Jesus worth more to me than anything? The psalmist says this, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the household of of my God because the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. This is the only place in the Bible where God is referred to as a sun. S-U-N. The sun is the giver of life. Without the sun, we would all perish All of those other things might give momentary pleasure. They might give us a sense of momentary life, but only God can give us eternal life. God is our shield. A shield is your protector. All of these other things, the money, the fame, the fortune, whatever else this world might offer, it might give us momentary sense of security but only God can give us the ultimate security from death and from judgment. God is the one who bestows favor and honor, probably better translated grace and glory. God gives us the grace to enter his presence, and eventually when we are with him forever, he gives us glory in his presence forever. And nothing in this world compares He ends ultimately saying, blessed is the one who trusts or places his faith, not in the things of this world, but in God himself. Who ultimately are we putting our faith in? You know, this world will tell you it's not who you believe or, or what you believe, but how sincerely you believe. that They, they make faith be sort of a, a thing that gets you through each day. Scripture couldn't be more different. Ultimately, faith is only as strong as the object in which you put your faith. And the psalmist is saying, blessed is the one who puts his faith not in the things of this world, but in God, and specifically in God's anointed one. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is probably the most important verse in this entire psalm. Because we read there something interesting. See, the psalmist the whole time cannot wait to get to the Lord's house. The psalmist this whole time is longing to be in the presence of the Lord. And yet, notice that when he gets there, he pleads with the Lord not to look on his face. He pleads with the Lord, rather, to look on the face of his shield. His Anointed One. The psalmist knows that a person does not enter the house of God unprotected. The psalmist knows that that ever since the fall, being cast out of the presence of God because of our sin, humanity's most pressing question has been, how can a sinner dwell with God? No one in Israel, as I said, could just stroll into the temple And certainly not into the holy of holies lest they die. And that is why those who were true Israel looked forward to the Messiah, to God's anointed one, to be their shield. The anointed one would ultimately be the shield whose holy face God would look on to grant us access into the house of God. Notice that Shield is used in the psalm only of two people, God and God's anointed one. In order to be shielded from God's judgment, God must do the shielding. You know, Christian, each week is like a pilgrimage back to this place. But each of our lives is basically a pilgrimage home to heaven. This world is not our home, but we are headed to our home finally and eternally to be with our King, to be with our shield, the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm begins by saying, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord? Where did God dwell best? it wasn't in the temple. It was in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came on the scene, he said, I am the temple. I am the one that the temple pointed forward to. And as Christians, we can find beauty in nothing greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies was torn. When Jesus died, it threw open the way of God to everyone. And Scripture tells us that when Christ returns, the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven. And the dimensions that we find in the Bible are that the new Jerusalem is a perfect cube. That the city that we will dwell in, will be as the Holy of Holies. No longer separated from God's presence, but in His immediate presence. Bathing in His immediate glory. Jesus has solved the conundrum. How can a sinner dwell with God? Because Jesus has made the way. And because of Him, Christian. You and I are going to dwell in the immediate presence of our God, not for a thousand days, but for all eternity. And right now, all of our dry valleys and our tears are weighing so heavily upon us, but Scripture says that day they will be a thing of the past. And as we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what our Lord did to open up that gate to paradise.